We've come a long way since Link first washed up on the mystery-clouded shores of Koholint Island. We went from Link's awakening on the island, to his awakening to the secret of the island, to his awakening from the island. That's why this week on Legendary Adventures Podcast, we're looking at the world of The Legend of Zelda, Link's Awakening, and its legacy in the series. The world of Link's Awakening sits somewhere between the world seen in the original Legend of Zelda and A Link to the Past. The world is more maze-like than the world we saw in A Link to the Past. But, like that game, it firmly establishes a sense of place, with villages, homes, and clearly defined locations. And you know which other world kind of sits in between The Legend of Zelda and A Link to the Past? Zelda 2. It's actually kind of hard to ignore the similarities between that game's structure and the structure of A Link's Awakening. So let's break it all down. We'll start with the world of A Link to the Past. It was clearly built around a central area. Hyrule Castle in the Light World and the Great Pyramid in the Dark World. Both central areas served as the main goal and a major landmark. Link's Awakening, however, does not feature a major goal or landmark that's dead center on the map. The goal is the egg atop Mount Tamaranch. It is located at the center of the map, but it's as far north as players can go. So while players can visit the egg after getting the power bracelet, it's ultimately just the end goal location, and it's a location on the edge of the map. It's not central to the player's mind like Hyrule Castle or the Great Pyramid. They may visit it, they may not, and how much they think about it, I can't really say, but I know most of my playthroughs, I'm not really thinking about it. The second most important location of the game is Mabe Village, located on the western edge of the map, just south of the center line. Players will visit Mabe Village multiple times throughout the game. Major quest lines pass through the town, it's also the starting point for the Straw Millionaire quest, and multiple trades are made there. The first fast travel point players will come across is also just east of town. This makes Mabe something of a hub for the adventure, even if it's not centrally located. Mabe Village has a sister city on the exact opposite side of the map in the form of Animal Village. But Animal Village is obviously the less important of the two locations. Players will make some trades there, and they'll find some important hints, but Animal Village lacks shops and minigames, and it has fewer main quest lines that run through it. The world opens in stages, and that has been true of all the titles in the series to this point, but the way the world of Link's Awakening opens and unfolds is in many ways closer to the style of Zelda II than it is to the original. The original game allowed players to access roughly two-thirds of the world map right from the start. The majority of the other third was behind a soft lock, meaning players with the right knowledge or skill could access the other parts of the world map. Only two screens are hard locked requiring the raft to access. Zelda 2, in contrast, opened its world much more deliberately. Each section of the world map is hard locked with players unable to venture further without first acquiring certain items or abilities. There are no soft locks or locations where players can advance further if they have the right level of skill or knowledge. This doesn't mean that players have no choice in tackling the main quest. For example, there were areas like Death Mountain and Maduro Palace which were interchangeable. You will, however, never hear stories of a player stumbling upon the Hidden Palace, for example, and then being forced to turn around because they haven't progressed far enough in the game. A Link to the Past sat somewhere between those two games. It generally presents players with a much larger portion of the map to explore than what's seen in Zelda 2, 
And after completing the game's tutorial dungeon, the majority of the Light World map is open to players, with only Upper Zora River and Death Mountain closed off. The Light World dungeon order, however, is set in stone. The Dark World is more limited at first, but with a more flexible dungeon order and a flexible order of completing main quests such as the Flute Boy, knowledgeable and skilled players can access much of the Dark World map quickly as well, and they can tackle the dungeons in a variety of orders. Link's Awakening feels more constrained in how the world opens compared to A Link to the Past. Players don't get access to most of the world until after they've completed the third dungeon, Key Cavern. At that point, players can access most, though not all, of the land-based areas on the map. The flippers and hookshot further open the world, but there is still a small fraction that remains locked until the mirror shield is obtained. The dungeon order is also more rigid, similar to Zelda 2. As with Zelda 2, players do have some flexibility in how they want to tackle main quest items. The Straw Millionaire quest contains a couple of choke points, such as at Canalet Castle, but generally it is flexible as to when players want to complete trades. Locations like the Southern Shrine and Canalet Castle can be completed as soon as they are reachable, and the game is brimming with hidden interactions and scenes and optional items which can only be found by exploring. The world may open in smaller chunks, but exploration is still very much a part of this title. I don't know if the similar structure of Zelda 2 was intentional. I imagine the decision to reveal the world in smaller portions was made in part because of the portable nature of the Game Boy. But the similarities are there all the same. Link's Awakening doesn't always get mentioned when influential Zelda titles are discussed. The original, A Link to the Past, and Ocarina of Time often dominate those discussions. I don't think it should be overlooked, however. Link's Awakening's impact on the series itself is large. We can see how much importance Nintendo itself puts on the title, based on the fact that it's among the most remade and re-released titles of the Zelda series. First, we saw the Deluxe Edition remaster which added color and expanded the game, then the Switch remake, which expanded the game further, and there were re-releases in between them. It's also notable that Link's Awakening was included on the Legend of Zelda Game & Watch released in 2021. Further, the current head of the Zelda team, Eiji Onuma, has admitted that Link's Awakening is a big influence on how he directs the series. Onuma joined the Zelda team with Ocarina of Time, serving as one of that game's directors. He has served as a producer, director, or supervisor for every game in the series since then. In a 2019 interview with Game Informer, Onuma said because he was not part of the Zelda team at the time, he approached Link's Awakening only as a player. He said, When I was playing Link's Awakening, I was very influenced by what the game offered. It definitely transferred to the other Zelda games I developed. And it's true, the ideas and the mechanics introduced in Link's Awakening or refined by it will continue on for most, if not all, future Zelda titles. In Zelda games up to this point, a dungeon item being required to complete the dungeon was the exception rather than the rule. In Link's Awakening, it's the inverse. There's only one dungeon in the entire game where the dungeon item's not required to complete it, Eagle's Tower. In the remaining seven dungeons, the dungeon item is necessary for completion. In Link's Awakening, items generally serve as a key within dungeons. Players will run into dead ends and unreachable chests, which will be open to them once the item is required. Most Zelda dungeons from this point on will be built in a similar fashion. The big keys of A Link to the Past were refined into the Nightmare Key. In A Link to the Past, the big key opened big chests and big key doors. Dungeons were generally split into two distinct halves marked by the big key door. 
In Link's Awakening, dungeons are less clearly separated. One could argue that the item requirement essentially serves the same purpose, but the division between the two parts of the dungeon is less clear. The nightmare keys are required only for reaching the dungeon boss. And for most of the games from this point on, the big key or the boss key or whatever they name it in that particular game will only unlock the boss door. And the dungeon sections will only be defined by whether or not the player has the dungeon item. Link's Awakening also introduces the concept of a collectathon quest within the series with its secret seashells. These are items intending to be collected, but which don't provide instant upgrades. Instead, players will get rewards based off of how many collectibles they find. Notably, in Link's Awakening, there are more collectibles to be found than what are actually needed for the final reward. Many of the Zelda games that follow will feature a collectathon quest, from Ocarina of Time's Gold Skultulas to Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom's Korok Seeds. Notably, these quests generally do not require players to collect all of the items to get the biggest prize, and all of the quests start here with the secret seashells. Link's Awakening also introduced the concept of a trading sequence quest to the series. I've mentioned this was inspired by The Legend of the Straw Millionaire. Players make a series of trades using items that are only used for trading. They get one item and then use it to trade for the next item in the sequence until reaching the ultimate item. Similar quests will be found in at least five subsequent games in the series. Here the quest is required to complete the game. In most subsequent games, the Straw Millionaire quest is strictly a side quest. There's also a variety of other gameplay elements seen in later games that can be traced back to this game. While flutes and whistles of various types have been there from the start, Link's Awakening is the first time players learned multiple songs that had different effects on the world. Multiple games in the series will approach a similar concept in a variety of ways, from the playable ocarinas in both Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask to the titular Wind Waker to the Howling Stones in Twilight Princess. Link's Awakening famously features a fishing minigame. Fishing is not as widespread in the Zelda series as the general perception would have you believe. I've seen many commentators make statements that fishing is almost synonymous with Zelda. In reality, only four games after Link's Awakening feature fishing. Six if we really want to say that the fish harvesting in Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom counts as fishing. But the perception of fishing being tightly linked to Zelda is strong, and it's all traced back to this game. Let's talk story. Developers view Link's Awakening as the true starting place of story in the Legend of Zelda series. The developers themselves attribute this in large part to the influence of Yoshiaki Koizumi. This was only the second game that Koizumi worked on. In an interview with Wired, Koizumi stated that he went to school to be a filmmaker, but when the opportunity came up to work at Nintendo, he took it. Koizumi told Wired, My ambition was always been to make drama. That was my goal, having a character in a certain kind of world, having him go through a series of actions to accomplish something, and creating dramatic tension throughout that and games seemed like a really good opportunity to create a kind of drama that you don't find in films. Koizumi said when he came onto the project, no story elements were in place. That allowed him to have a large impact on the story. He said, the dream, the island, that was all mine. The other credited writer, Kensuke Tanabe, developed the Straw Millionaire Quest. He also played a big role in shaping the game's bosses. But let's not forget director Takashi Tezuka, who also had a role in expanding the story. Tezuka said he didn't try to expand storytelling elements on purpose, but he believes his desire to create something with the feel similar to Twin Peaks contributed to the direction of the story. He set the parameters for it. 
such as that it will not happen in Hyrule, and it will not feature Princess Zelda. Now, it should be noted that each game in the series to this point has featured an increased focus on story. The story of the first game was strictly regulated to the manual and a summary on the attract screen. The second game's story was also largely contained to the manual, but it was more complex, and changes to the world, like the inclusion of villages and quests stemming from those villages, naturally expanded storytelling. A Link to the Past took it further still, with an expanded introduction and story-focused scenes that happened at key points. Link's Awakening, however, goes beyond any of those games by adding some cinematic flair. The game's opening and closing cutscenes are like nothing else seen in the series to this point. They're drawn in a style completely different from the rest of the game. There's also the scene with Marin just before Animal Village. It stands out as a scene unlike anything in a Zelda game to this point. The viewpoint behind the backs of the characters is simple. The conversation is simple. But the cinematic flair that it adds to it is different, the way the camera tilts down at first. I really like it. There's also the dramatic reveal of the true nature of the island at the Southern Shrine. We get to see the carving that Link is reading for dramatic emphasis. All this combines with a cast of characters who are more distinct and memorable than any other scene in the series to this point, and it adds up to a richer story that Zelda fans continue to talk about and enjoy today. The true nature of Koholint is broadly known among Zelda fans at this point, and the game isn't too secretive about the reveal either. It's kind of in the title, but it's nonetheless compelling and it continues to impact players. By developing clear, memorable characters and providing players with empathy through Marin, the story of Link's Awakening continues to pull players in for the story in addition to the gameplay. From here on out, story will remain a major focus in the series. Next week, The Legend of Zelda makes the jump to the third dimension. We'll tackle one of the best loved and most influential games in the series, Ocarina of Time. If you want to follow along, please subscribe. Please also consider sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Paul Riley. Thanks for listening.